welcome you to the porch. My name is Josiah Jones. I have the privilege of being on staff here serving with the Young Adult Ministry. And if you're watching online, welcome to the porch. And all of our porch live locations around the nation just placed in different uh, places in our nation, whether that be Porch Live Des Moines or uh, Porch Live Boise, Porch Live Scottsdale, Dayton, Ohio, Porch Live Atlanta, and a whole host of other Porch Live locations. Can you help us welcome them? Yeah. You picked a really good time to be here at the porch, and uh, we're really excited about what God's going to do tonight. And before I get going and introduce our guest speaker, I just want to say thank you for, join, for joining us here on a Tuesday night. We know you could be in a, a lot of different places in Dallas, but you're here. And uh, I was having brunch earlier in the week and I invited my waitress to the porch and she said, oh yeah, like the restaurant? And I said, no, 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 not, not the restaurant, the young adult ministry. And so maybe you got conned to come into the porch thinking it was the restaurant and bar, but you're here on a Tuesday night at Watermark Community Church. We're glad you're here. And, uh, and so you're in for a real treat because uh, who I want to introduce you to is uh, really near and dear to my faith. Uh, when I came to know Christ several years ago, uh, this man was instrumental in my growth. Uh, and I found him through a podcast, uh, through a friend who sent me a podcast. And then I read books uh, about uh, just the gospel of Jesus Christ in which he wrote. And this person that I'm talking about is Matt Chandler. And yeah, and you resonate with me when I say, hey, he was instrumental in uh, my growth. You resonate with it because that's the same, the same is true for you. And so I remember picking up a book that he wrote in 2011 called The Explicit Gospel, where it just gave me this robust, high view of who God is, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it just exploded, uh, the, the gospel exploded off the pages in my mind and heart and just caused me to fall more in love with Christ. And then a year later, he wrote a book called To Live as Christ and to Die as Game, where he just walked us through the book of Philippians. And so if you still don't know who Matt Chandler is, he is a lead pastor at the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. And so he is here tonight to bring the word. And so before he comes up, I want to pray and thank God for him. And really, let me do that right now. Thank you, Matt, for the investment that you have made in the kingdom of God. Only heaven knows uh, the uh, fruit that has come out of his ministry and that continues to come out of his ministry through his faithfulness. So thank you, Matt. Let me pray. God in heaven, we are honored and humbled that you have brought Matt Chandler to the porch tonight. God, we know that you don't need us, but you choose to use us in spite of us to accomplish your purposes. And I'm thankful for the faith that you've given Matt and the way that he has leveraged his life to make you known. And God, I, I, I'm just excited about the word that you have for him tonight that you would use him in a powerful way, that his voice would be your voice, that, uh, God, your words would explode in our hearts. And, God, we wouldn't see a mere man, but we would see straight through Matt to you. And, God, it would cause us to have a deep faith in uh, you as our Lord and Savior. And so, God, use him in a powerful way tonight. And, God, if there's people here that don't know you, God, may they come to know you as a result of tonight's service. We love you and we thank you. It's in, whole, it's, the, it's in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. I say all these things in, amen. Give it up for Matt Chandler. Hey, it's good to see you. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. We're gonna be in Job chapter one. And I know you're thinking, not on a Tuesday, Matt. You're not doing Job on a Tuesday. You save that for Sunday. Uh, and yet I think there's something really beautiful about Job for you and for me. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, what I'm going to try to do in the next 35 minutes is preach through the book of Job. Uh, and so that's really, that's aspirational and we'll see how it goes. Uh, when my oldest daughter, uh, who's about, she's 20 now, she's not about 20, she is 20, uh, was about four or five years old. We were in uh, our car and we were heading uh, to Possum Kingdom Lake for a little uh, rest. Uh, apparently that committee up there didn't get to vote on what to call the lake and they, did, they landed on Possum Kingdom Reservoir. And so we were heading out to Possum Kingdom and Audrey, um, she had uh, several days earlier been bitten by something and had like a 
bug bite on her leg. And, and, and so it, it, it was bothering her. She was scratching it. And if you've been around kids, you got to, hey, don't scratch that. But you wouldn't be able to stop scratching it. And so you're trying to explain to a four-year-old mind, I know that feels good. You're making it worse. Leave it alone. Uh, and she just kept itching at it. And then we stopped for gas. And my in-laws were coming with us. That's not a bad thing. I really like my in-laws. Uh, like jackpot on the in-laws, right? Uh, my father-in-law's given name is Johnny Walker. He played tailback at Southern Miss. I mean, that's like jack- jackpot level stuff. And, um, and, and we're getting gas. And my mother-in-law comes to the car as mother-in-laws do when you have grandchildren. And um, Audrey rolled down the window quickly because this usually for Audrey means whatever she wants. And so she rolls down the window um, and um, says hi to Mimi and then begins to explain to Mimi that her leg hurt and that something bit her. My mother-in-law, who's a very intelligent, despite this story, my mother-in-law is a very intelligent woman, raised two God-fearing young adults, one of whom I am madly in love with, looked at my little four-year-old daughter's leg and said, oh, that looks like a boil. I hope they don't have to lance that. No, we're fine. My daughter's four. What does she know about lancing stuff? So she asked, what is that? And this woman who raised two God-fearing, well-adjusted, successful adults, said to my four-year-old daughter, it's where they take a, a, like a lance, a scalpel, and they cut it open to let the poison out. Now, I don't know how well-adjusted the four-year-olds you've been around are, uh, but mine has a lot of Chandler in her, which makes her frenetic with energy, passionate in desire, and, and stubborn in will. And so for the next two hours, I can't get the radio loud enough to cover up Audrey's screams of, I don't want him to cut my leg. I don't want him to cut my leg. I don't want him to cut my leg. And I'm smart enough now at the age of four for her to not go, oh baby, they're not gonna cut your leg. Cause they might, and I'm trying not to be a liar as best you can with kids. And so uh, by the time we get to Possum Kingdom and really by the next day, it's obvious that this is a boil, it has grown, her leg is hot to the touch. And so we go to the hospital and or vet in Mineral Wells. <laughs> and I think it was both, I'm not sure. And we take Audrey in and, and the nurses come in and they check her out. And if I offended one of you from Mineral Wells, I'm sorry, it was confusing. And, um, and, and this internist, he, he's innocent. I mean, he knows nothing of my mother-in-law's medical explanation to my four-year-old walks in and he, he doesn't hardly, he's like in the room for like three seconds and he just looks at it and he touches it and he says out loud, yeah, that's a boil, we're gonna need to lance it. <laughs> now, at that moment, my four-year-old daughter somehow developed the strength of a thousand sons. And there aren't enough nurses in the state of Texas to pin that little girl down so they could numb her leg and lance it. And so she's like throwing nurses against the wall. And finally, that's hyperbole. And the doctor, this, this punk kid internist, looks at me and like enlists my help. Dad, I don't know where Lauren went. Like, where did Lauren go? Where'd my wife go? She knew this so. I had to crawl on this bed, use my forearm to pin my little girl down to the bed with tears streaming down her face, eyes of fire and betrayal <laughs> penetrating my soul. I'm trying not to cry. I feel like there's, there has to be another way there. And I have to pin her down until they put that lidocaine in her leg and then they lance the boil and they wrap it up and she's in therapy right now and she's doing fine. No, there, there was a, maybe that's true, but there was a moment on that hospital gurney where I'm using my strength to let something painful happen to this little girl that the first time I ever held her, I felt I'm still really capable of violence. And I, I felt like in that moment, that might be the closest I'll ever get to understanding God and suffering. That might be the closest I ever get to understanding God and, and suffering. 
And so one of the reasons I love the Bible, I mean, I love the Bible, and you're probably like, yeah, that's going to be helpful for what you do. But uh, I love the Bible. And one of the reasons I love, there's a lot of reasons I love the Bible, but for the purpose of our 35-minute tour through the book of Job, I love the Bible because it's a grimy book. The Bible never paints a picture of reality that's inconsistent with our lives. It never does. It is, a, it is not a children's book. In fact, to try to make it a children's book makes you skip over certain stories that there's no childlike way to tell the story. It is a, like every bit of pain, hardship, trauma, loss, disappointment, disease, death, crisis, tragedy imaginable is in the book. Like if this is meant to manipulate people, it is a terrible work of propaganda. It is grimy from beginning to end. Genesis, it is a grimy, grimy book. It's like the Bible wants us to know. The God of the Bible wants us to know that suffering is going to be normal, that disappointment is going to follow us, that confusion and disorientation around certain realities of life in a fallen world should be expected among his people. Now, what's difficult in 2023, and maybe what's been difficult for the last 20 years, is that you and I are in this really odd moment in human history. And if you've got any kind of education in regards to history or sociology, you know some of this is true. Like we live in this tiny little window and the first window that's really ever existed where we are shoveling the idea that everyone's reality should be one of chipper gladness and ever increasing happiness with very little confusion and disappointment. And what sociologists are now finding, not Christian sociologists, they're finding this idea of perpetual happiness, like up and to the right life is actually doing a lot of damage to our souls. Because look at me, that's no one's life, regardless of what they're taking pictures of and posting. So there are all these popular level books being launched out of this research. One of the oldest ones is a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I just like the title. Some of the newer ones, The Happiness Trap. I mean, anybody pick up The Happiness Trap? I mean, that just kind of shows you where we are. Nobody's picking up The Happiness Trap. We want to like, give it, show me the happiness. Or Anti-Fragile. The Coddling of the American Mind, most recently Lost Connections. All of these books are saying the idea that suffering is abnormal and happiness is every day of our lives and it's always up and to the right is absurd. And the more you actually believe and think that's going to be your life, the more anxious, the more depressed, and the more hopeless you will grow. In enters the book of Job. Well, let me, let me start here. Let me, let me explain Job. It's, it's just a bad book to put in the Bible, I think, if you're trying to win converts. Now, it's probably a great book if you're trying to dial people into reality. In the middle of the Bible, there are these four books. They're called the wisdom literature, right? They're like, this is how life works. This is how human flourishing works. And there are these two books in the wisdom literature. They're telling the same story, but they're telling it from a different vantage point, right? Uh, one of those books is Ecclesiastes, another chipper little book in the middle of your Bible. Uh, and so what happens in the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon wants to test if there's anything worth having under the sun. And he goes hard at it. He's a king. He's the wealthiest man on earth. Uh, he, he makes Bezos look broke. I mean, this guy's got, not only does he have cheddar, but he's got power. He's a king. There's no Senate. He can do what he wants. And he's, he, has enough, he has enough cash to make it happen. And, and the book of Ecclesiastes tells us it goes something like this, that, that he starts out like most young men do in the party scene. And so he throws a party. And here's what he found out about parties. They're fun, right? That's what he says. He, he's just like, you know what I found out about partying? It's actually a pretty good time. And, and so he, he gives himself, and he parties, man. He goes pretty good. And about two or three, four or five months in, we don't know the, the time frame, he starts going, this party's kind of lame. So does he quit partying? Oh, no, man. No, he ratchets it up. He's like, we're going to throw a bigger party tonight. And he brings live music. Get, get rid of that DJ. We're going live music, live band, uh, more barrels of wine, all right? More food, more. And he throws a bigger party. And he goes hard for another year, another two years. And he goes and tells, man, this party is lame. And so then he goes even bigger. And you can find a list of just what he was barbecuing 
at these parties, something like, like 200 head of cattle, like 400 birds, like 400 chickens, man. Like, I don't know if you ever been to a barbecue. You ain't been to a barbecue like that. I know you got your little Labor Day thing you do, but this is something different. I mean, this man goes hard. He goes so hard that he can't go harder. And he wakes up in the back of an El Camino with a new tattoo. He has no memory of what just happened. He's got to figure out how to get back to Jerusalem. And maybe that's a prophetic word for one of you. And then um, he gets back to Jerusalem. And here's what he, here, he's like, it's not going to work. This party scene is not going to work. And so then from the party scene, he, he moves to business. If party isn't going to do it, then I'm going to build an empire. And so he plants vineyards and he builds cities and he, like, he is wildly successful. If you went to Jerusalem to this day and went east, you would find these craters called the Pools of Solomon. And they are there because he planted full forests and vineyards. And so I know you put that little crepe myrtle out on your balcony. This is something different than that. And he got to the place where he couldn't be more successful. That, that the, the, the neighborhoods he built and the companies he had acquired and the vineyards he had planted and the forests that he had made, there just wasn't anything bigger. And he said, dang it, this is worthless too. In fact, the refrain of the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity is vanity. All is vanity or meaningless meaningless. All is meaningless. Brother just needs a hug. So he starts in the party scene and it doesn't work. So then he moves to the big, he builds an empire for himself. So, so he can't build it any bigger and it doesn't work. So then he moves over to pleasure. Normally in 2023, we like to, we like to pair up that pleasure with our party phase, but he, he waits. He, he, he's kind of a tycoon now. So he goes pleasure and he does not hold back on pleasure. There's not body type, position, or experience that he doesn't give himself over to. And guess what he said about it? That was awesome until it wasn't. And then vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And then he gave himself over to what he just calls leisure or what we would call self-care. Gives himself over to self-care. He just goes out to the ranch. He's getting a massage, got a chef cooking meals. He just doesn't do anything. He just gives himself over to a life of leisure and says, this isn't working either. And so Solomon exists because you and I will find ourselves stuck on a treadmill because we can't get that level of success. We are never going to have that level of money. You're not going to have that level of power, even if you do have that level of money. So Solomon's there going, done it. It ain't going to work. It, that, that party scene, I've been all the way to the end. It's just going to leave you with a lot of regret and a broken heart. Hey, I built an empire. It's not going to deliver. Hey man, I gave myself to that wildness and let me tell you what I got from it. Nothing, pleasure in the moment, regret after it's over. And then I just gave myself, you know what I really wanna do? I just want cucumbers on my eyes. I don't want anybody to talk to me. And I did that and it's meaningless. There is nothing under the sun that will satisfy the souls of man. Then there's Job. Job doesn't, gain everything and find out God is enough. Job loses everything and finds out God is enough. Now this is important because you and I are stuck between these two brothers. I'm not saying you hadn't suffered. I'm saying you hadn't suffered like Job. And I'm not saying you hadn't been successful. I'm saying you can't be as successful as Solomon, which means you and I are stuck between these two men and we don't have to follow their trails because they're telling us guys, hey, it's not going to work, and he's enough. They're both saying he's enough from a different direction. And with that said, let's read the book of Job. Not the whole thing. Well, let's start in 1-1. One, one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So I just want to stop. And you're like, this is going to take forever. No, trust me. Like Job's a good man. Like he's an upright man. He's a good husband. He, he never swindled anyone out of money. He is a respected man. He works hard. He loves his wife. He's good to his kids. He's a good, upright man. That's what the Bible says. And then from there, this book takes this really weird turn where God's on his throne and, and the angels are presenting themselves before God and Satan comes in. And God says, what have you been up to? And Satan says, ah, perusing the sons of men. And God says, you consider my God Job? My God Job loves me. He's upright. He's righteous. Say, oh, please. Like you've blessed him with 
every day. Like he's one of the wealthiest men on earth. He got like a billion kids, got a wife, got respect. But if you let me take all his stuff, he'll curse your name. And God sets parameters. Don't touch his body. Don't kill him. Take his stuff. And here's where we pick up the story again. Now, there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And when he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I would like to just state the obvious. Job is better than we are. I made some charges against God just trying to get here to preach this thing coming down 35 to 635. I make charges against people in the left lane who are going the speed limit. I, I just have a problem with that. And I think the Lord probably has a problem with that. And so I was asking the Lord for justice. He's a better man than we are. And then what happens is, is the scene shifts back to God's throne room and God is in his throne and here are the angels again and here comes Satan and God boasts on Job to Satan. He's like, hey, Satan, shh, you, you hear that? Blessed be the name of the Lord. You hear, oh my gosh, is that Job? That's Job. Did you take all this stuff? You did take all, you hear, gives and takes. That's about me. He's singing about me. And then Satan fires back. That's because he has his strength. Let me take his strength and he'll curse your name. God sets parameters again. You can inflict him. You cannot kill him. And we pick up the story again. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, ladies, don't do this. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Husbands, I wouldn't do that. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, what happens next is Job's friends. Everybody hears about this, right? This is a famous, wealthy tycoon of a man who's highly regarded. It's clear that he's favored by God and his close friends come and when they see him, they weep and no one says a word for seven days. All they do is they see him, they're heartbroken. They don't tell him that all things work together for the good of those who are called by God according to his purposes. They just see him and their heart breaks and they weep for seven days. And if that's all they would have done, we would know their names and we would celebrate them for being an example of what to do when it hurts. But unfortunately, they opened their mouths. The next major section of the book of Job, we won't read it, are his friends giving him advice, telling him and trying to explain to him why these things have happened to him. And, and what I think they, what, what I'm gonna argue they represent is they represent what happens when we suffer, when we're disappointed, when we're confused, when we're disoriented, when it's happened to us or when it's happened to somebody we love, when we don't understand, when we're disoriented, what happens when you look around? 
right? So you're looking around, you're trying to figure out what is, how do I make sense of this? I, I, I've heard that God is good. How do I make sense that this has happened to me, that this has happened to my friend, that this person I love, how do you make sense of this level of brokenness? And I think there are four things that can happen to us when we start looking around. And I think Job's friends represent those four things. Here's the first one. We can, if we're not careful in a world broken by sin, we can become fatalistic. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm going to date myself. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I don't, I don't know. Uh, you remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Cameron? Remember Cameron? Like Cameron won't get out of bed. He's convinced he's going to die. Why bother? And he won't. He, he don't want to do anything. So Ferris is trying to coax him out. He just doesn't want to leave because he knows he's going to be dead at any moment. So he doesn't want to try anything. He doesn't care about school. He doesn't care about college. He doesn't care about girls. He doesn't care about, he doesn't care about, because he's, he's like already decided it's over. Well, one of the things that can happen to us as Christians, if we're not careful, one of the things that can happen to you, maybe especially if you're not a Christian, is you can look around and you can develop a real fatalistic like, view of life. Like, like you can just decide that it's always going to be bad for you, that it's never going to work out for you, and you can become paralyzed and, and no longer kind of live into uh, your calling, live into your purpose. You, you, you just, you, and, and here's how I experience this as a pastor. I've pastored the same church for over 20 years. Some people will over-identify with their suffering until they are that suffering. You tracking with me? Like they can't even, they, they're just the sick one. And the only way they know to relate to people is to be sick. And so they take it on as an identity. It's not something that's happened to them. It's not something that's part of a, a broken, fallen world. It's like who they are. So I'm the, I'm the sick one. I'm the one that always has the migraines. I, I, I'm the one that can't get pregnant. I'm the one that's this. I'm, and they own it. They own the disease. They own the suffering as like their primary identity. And they stop, to be, they stop even knowing how to relate to other people except through the disease, except through the suffering, except through the loss, except through the disappointment. They become jaded and fatalistic and, and why bother? Why get out of bed? And that's one of the things that happens if you just start looking around to make sense of life in a sinful world. Uh, another thing that can happen is actually quite Buddhist and it's this, this idea that suffering isn't real. You, you just need to kind of detach. So a, a kind of a popular level Buddhist teaching is that suffering actually doesn't exist. You're just too attached. And if you would detach yourself from the things of this world, you would detach yourself from your stuff. You would detach yourself from relationships. You would detach yourself from the things of this world. You wouldn't be able to suffer because you couldn't lose anything because you've kind of reached divine detachment. Now, with no smoke towards the Buddhist, what a terrible way to live. Here's what I know. To be attached, biblically speaking, either in friendship or in marriage, puts you in harm's way. To love someone puts you in a dangerous spot. Do you know who I don't think can hurt me tonight? You. Like, I think when this is over, you're like, that guy's, I hate that. You get to Instagram, lame, <laughs> study harder. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show my wife, I'm like, look at this guy. This guy lives crazy. Oh, you want to see his profile? Yeah, look, no, he lives with his mom. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's like this. Like, I, I win. I, yeah, I win. And I'm not, but you know who could absolutely destroy me? Lauren. I mean, oh my gosh, with just a sentence. She could kill me. And it's worth it. And some of you, I love you, you have made unholy vows that no one's ever gonna hurt you like that again. That you're never gonna allow anybody else to do that to you. And in so doing, you have closed yourself off. You have refused to be known. You have refused, in essence, to be loved again or to take the risk of loving another. I'm not talking about abuse. That's not, yeah, you make that vow. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm, I'm talking about general relationships and letting people in, loving and being loved in return. 
the person who looks around goes, no, I'm not going to let anybody hurt me like that again. I'm not going to set myself up for that kind of disappointment. I'm not going to take that risk. And we start to make what I'm serious. They're unholy vows. They're promises in relationship with evil spirits. That might be too much for you. I mean, you might be like me, Baptist background. You're like, evil spirit. <laughs> like it, it's what happens when you say, I won't, no one will ever do that to me again. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm talking about just being known and knowing. I'm talking about being loved and loving. Like no one gets to do that to me. You make this vow and then you build like armor around you so that nobody ever can. And you can build that with theology. Then you can build it uh, with all sorts of uh, kind of antisocial behavior, but you kind of build a a wall around you and it's all for self-protection. And you grow increasingly jaded, increasingly angry, increasingly mean. And then, gosh, in 2023, you get to brag about that. Right? It's just heartbreaking. It's one of the things that happens is we're just like, I'm going to detach. I'm not going to let anybody hurt me. I'm going to live in such a way that nobody can hurt me. And I'm just telling you, all you're doing is emptying your life of meaning. The risk is worth it. And then the idea of karma. Right, that what goes right, you know, like if I do good things, good things are gonna happen to me. If I do bad things, bad things are gonna happen to me. Like, you don't actually want karma. <laughs> Karma's a bad gig. Like, what you want is grace. The promise of the gospel isn't karma, be good and I'll bless you. It's, uh, I've got good for you because of me. That's what you want. You want the grace of God in your life. And then lastly, um, if you're looking around, you're just gonna think that suffering's meaningless. And random. And here's what's interesting about the book of Job. Job, throughout the book, although the Bible says he does not sin in it, he's constantly, his friends are like, this is what happened. You know, if you were righteous, this wouldn't have happened to you. He's like, that's not it. In fact, I wish the Lord would come down. I've got some questions for the Lord. I need the Lord to answer my, like I, I've served him well. I've praised his name. I, I've done good with my money. I loved my wife. I loved my kids. I did what he called me to do. How could this, I got questions for God. Why? How in the world am I supposed to move forward with him in light of this? And then it's like, here's what's fascinating about the book of Job. God never answers his question. It's almost as if the creator God of the universe, who's alpha and omega, he is outside of time. Are you tracking with me when I say that? It means the future isn't something he knows about. It's a place he is right now. Let that bend your brain a little bit, right? Like God's not a prophet per se. He's not like prophesying about the future. He's there right now in his fullness while being here with us right now in his fullness. He is outside of time. We are inside of time. He knows all things and how all things lead to other things, creating other things, moving other things that create other things without ever getting tired or having his brain seize up. How could we possibly comprehend life in a fallen world as limited as we are in our flesh? Augustine, who's my ancient friend, um, he described life in this world as having your face pressed up against a stained glass window. He's like, you're gonna, you're gonna see some colors. It's gonna look like things are broken and we just can't get far enough back to see that it makes something beautiful. And I'm telling you, I'm, I've been pastoring a church for 20 years. I, I, I know all the horrific things that can happen to people. And I think I understand what Augustine means, that sometimes you look up and all, just all you see is shattered glass. At least that's what it appears to us. And so it's as though God knows our our brains are too small to comprehend that that there's no way for us to possibly put all of that together as limited as we are in our flesh. He has always been and will always be. And we're like a half a second. We really are. Like, you know, the the old adage, you're here today, gone tomorrow. You know, the Bible didn't even give you that. Bible's like here in the morning, gone by lunch. You're like the dew of the grass that's here in the morning and by afternoon is gone. So you're not even like here today, gone tomorrow. It's like you were there in the morning and by brunch, you're gone. And that verse is meant to orient us around God's godness as opposed to our frail humanity. So what God does do, instead of explaining how this leads to this, that creates this, that brings this about, that does this, that creates this, all the way down the line of human history, he says, 
quit looking around and look up. Stop looking around to make sense of all of this and get your eyes up on me. That's all he does with Job. He, Job finally is like, I got, I got questions. And God's like, I've got some questions. So how about you dress for action like a man and I'll ask you some questions. And really from Job 38, verse four, all the way to the end of the book, God just like starts asking Job questions. And here's just a little taste of it. I'm not gonna read all of that. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? I, I mean, we can just keep going. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And he goes on and on. And this might sound cruel, but what God is doing for Job is orienting him around God's power and God's goodness. Because here's what in the rest of the scriptures, here's how God um, kind of works when we look up. So let me give you just a couple of these. I don't have a ton of time left. Um, here are the promises of God when we look up rather than look around. So rather than being fatalistic, ra rather than just detaching, rather than armoring up, you know, rather than just going, ah, it's inevitable, everybody suffers, is to um, look at these promises. Here's what we're promised, that Jesus is with us in the mess. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So what's the promise when we look up rather than look around and try to make sense of all of this? That Jesus will be near and that Jesus will comfort. We see in Hebrews chapter four that Jesus is an empathetic high priest. A good friend of mine says this verse like this, he knows it's scary to be us. We see in John 11 that Jesus sees the lament of Lazarus' sisters, and he weeps. We see in the book of James that nothing is wasted and that suffering produces character and endurance, perseverance, and maturity. It makes us strong that contrary to popular opinions, we are not candles that need to be protected from the wind lest we get snuffed out, but actually are like fires that the wind heats up and helps burn hotter, you could take the story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and you could boil it down to three words, God with us. That's the story of the Bible. What, what's happening in Eden at creation except God with us, walking with them in the cool of the garden in the morning. And then what happens when God leads his people out of slavery and sets up the tabernacle right in the middle of their encampment, all of their tents. When you opened up your tents, you looked at the tabernacle and the manifest presence of God was there. Not by faith, by fire and smoke, the presence of God. And what happened at the temple? The glory of God fell. And, and and all of Jerusalem oriented around the temple, God with us. And what happens at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, except God with us. And then what happens at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, become temples of the living God, and God is with us. Suffering does not mean that we have been abandoned or forgotten. It's not what it means. God is with us in the mess. There's a great deal of mystery around the brokenness and hardship of life as a human being. It'll, it'll break your brain. It can get so awful. Again, I, I'm not naive to those things. I've pastored a large church for 20 years. A lot of small coffins, and there shouldn't be small coffins. A lot of sicknesses that have ravaged a body long after, you would think. A lot of random loss that feels insane. And, and that's just, I'm just talking about one local church. I'm not even talking about lifting your eyes up globally. And yet, to look around and try to make sense of that is crushing to the soul. 
And so the Lord says, look up, see me. See what in particular? I think primarily see Christ on the cross dying for your sins. If God is for you, who can be against you? Like to look up and see that God has moved towards you in his love regardless of your rebellion and my rebellion against him. That from Genesis to Revelation, God moves towards his people with grace, moves towards his people with forgiveness, moves towards his people with the promise of life, moves towards his people with the promise of joy and gratitude and belonging and hope and and one day glory and a sense of understanding. One day we get far enough back to see it. One day there's no remembrance of former things. One day there'll be no more tears in eyes. One day there'll be no more sickness and death. And in the already but not yet, in this space in between, the Lord would say, look up, look to the cross, see my love for you, see how I've moved towards you. Trust that I am at work in the mess because I think that's the story of the Bible, God at work in the mess. It's not that there's not a mess. It's that he's at work in it in a way that's mysterious to us and we can get lost in it if we try to look around and make sense of it. And so here's what I wanna lay before you. I I think here's why I've come. Um, it, It has been my experience in Christian circles in particular that if we're not careful, we begin to move towards fatalism. Like even though we've got the hope of the gospel, we've got the hope of eternal life in us, what ends up happening is we, we just start turning fatalistic. And I think one of the ways that looks is we, we cease to be prayerful. We cease to be able to see what's good in our life and all we can see is the, what's wrong. I, I don't know if you know anybody like this right now or maybe you find yourself in that place. Listen, I've, I've been tempted to go there myself where I'm just so aware of everything that needs to be fixed that I can't see just how good and beautiful and kind God has been to me. Like I haven't recounted his goodness because I've seen these five or six or eight or 10 or 12 things that drive me nuts that I don't understand that seem cruel and unjust. So I can't see any of the beauty and grace in my life for all of the kind of railing against what's broken. And I wonder if you find yourself there, like you can feel yourself growing jaded just feel it like you just feel yourself growing jaded slipping getting angrier wanting to create distance from the Lord and from other believers and and part of what I want to do in coming tonight is like hey don't don't look up I know I'm not trying to take away from you how frustrating hurt is. I'm not trying to take away from you uh, confusion. I'm not trying to take away from you even like not understanding. What I'm trying to do is lift your eyes up to God's love for you in Christ. So I want to call you out of that fatalism. Or maybe you're not, maybe you're not fatalistic at all. Maybe you've gone the other way. Maybe you just made some unholy vows. Nobody's going to hurt you again. You're not gonna lose anybody you love anymore. And you are so, you got your whole world so locked down. You, you are so trying to control your entire environment that you are redlining. I mean, you are anxious and afraid and, and barely hanging in there as you try to make sure nothing happens to anybody. Like you've taken on kind of like, uh, like mother hen responsibilities for your whole crew. Like, like I wanna call you out of detachment. I want to call you back into being loved and loving, trusting again, leaning into the risk of being fully known and fully knowing others to give love another shot. And then, man, I want to, if I can, I want to bag on karma a little bit because you're not under wrath, you're under mercy. And again, this is, um, I was talking to the leadership before this and I, the big struggle of my life, it'll be the, the, I think, my struggle the rest of my life. I think I've got some family of origin issues that, that kind of make this flare. But it is really easy for me to believe that I'm useful for, for God, to God. I think God finds me useful. Well, I like this kid. We're going to use him. It's harder for me to believe that he just loves me and delights in me. That's just a hard sell for me. I'm going to read it in the book. I can wrestle with it in the book. It's just hard for me, man. I'm an achiever. I'm a doer. I received affirmation and affection by accomplishment, not by being. And the Lord's always just like, no, it's you. You're, you're what I like. I like you. I'm like, well, I did this for you. I'm like, great, but you, why don't you come hang out with me? Well, I would, but I got to do this stuff because I know you like that. And he's like, no, no, I didn't, I didn't even ask you for that. I want you. 
And I wonder how many of you feel stuck in this idea of karma, like you're incessantly trying to work to please the Lord, incessantly trying to be good so he'll bless you, incessantly trying to check this box and circle this box and accomplish this so that he'll finally love you. I've said this for 20 years, almost every time I've preached, God is not in love with some future version of you. And I wish you'd, by the grace of God, drive that out of your head. It's just not like once you get that right, you and God are finally cool. You're cool because of what Christ did, not because of what you do. You're reconciled because of the finished work of Jesus, not because you're figuring some things out. Now, you figuring those things out will, can lead to greater intimacy and experience of his presence. But there's nothing salvific in your behavior or Christ didn't need to die on the cross. Like it was his death that justifies you, his death that makes you whole, his death that heals you once and for all. And so all I wanted to do in our limited time tonight is I don't think hardly anybody talks about suffering anymore. We always talk about the joy of the Lord. And what's amazing about his presence is that people in the scriptures who endure some horrific things still seem to have a joy, not a happiness, a joy that's rooted in something bigger than their circumstances. And if I could give you anything as you kind of keep running the long journey home, it would be maybe just a little bit more understanding that the world is broken, that suffering is going to be normal, and that Jesus is good. And to not try to look around and make sense of it as much as you look up and gaze upon the beauty of God in sending the Son to die for your sins, resurrect to show the bills been paid in full, and that life, real life, full life is available to you in Jesus now. Why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you just bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's weird for you, I promise nobody's going to touch you or take your stuff. Well, I don't think they will. I'm sure there's some shady people in here, but just, just bow your heads, close your eyes, but just keep your stuff close to you. All right, I'm, just a couple of questions, and they don't. It, it's really between you and the Lord. It's not between me and you, I promise. Like I'm, I'll head to a meeting after this and then back up to Flower Mound. So I, I just wanted to ask, like, like just maybe in a moment of vulnerability between you and the Lord, I just wanted to ask if you find yourself in the season of life growing jaded, like growing frustrated, growing distant from the Lord, and it's tied to some heartbreak, some disappointment, some disease, some death, some confusion, some bit of brokenness that you just don't get. And it's hard for you to reconcile that he's good and that this is possible. And you're, you're just in a season where you're like, man, I can feel my heart growing colder towards the Lord because of these things. If that's you and you're in the room, would you just raise your hand high? Like just raise, just get it up high. You don't have anything to be embarrassed. I mean, you are like, you are among almost everybody in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Like let's get them high. Like we're not Baptist. There we go. All right, praise God. Listen, there are so many of you in here. So go ahead and put your hands down. Now I want you to look up at me. If you had your hand up, I mean, all of you can look up at me. The Lord sees you. I would would just press a little bit that you might think about the rest of the night tonight like this. Like this message isn't getting me a lot of followers on Instagram. This message isn't like, oh, that was awesome tonight. This is more of a disorienting thing to come in here and talk about. It's certainly not a popularity one. So like I'd have done dating if I wanted that. But this is the thing that will strengthen your soul for life as it is. And so here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to pray for us. And um, we've got some more singing to do tonight, but there are going to be men and women up here. And they're going to pray. And if you raise your hand tonight, I just want you to be so bold as to come and receive prayer. Just come and let people who aren't in that season, they either have been or they will be one day. They're not in that season right now. Just pray for you. Just pray courage back into your bones. Pray life back into your bones. I don't want you to walk in shame. I don't want you to walk in shame right now. I I want you to be so bold as, as to say, I need someone to pray for me because I am slipping here, man. And that's scaring me. I I want somebody to pray for me. And so I'm going to pray. And then there's going to be a group of men and women that come up front. And they're already coming. And then we're going to stand and sing. Is that right? Davey, are we going to stand and sing? We're going to stand and sing. You like that? That's, I probably could have looked at the notes. It's fine. I'm already over. 
And then we're gonna stand and sing it. Here's what, if you raised your hand, I'm telling you, man, there's like a hundred and something of you that you not talk yourself out of it, that you not justify, I'm fine, that was enough, just raising my hand was enough. And that you would, this might be a little too charismatic for you, you might activate some faith in your heart by moving your body. You might come up and grab the hands. I like, you're, you're not gonna make anybody gasp up here. You tracking with me? Like you're not gonna say something that makes them go, oh, we don't know what to do with you. That's not going to happen tonight. We know exactly what to do. They're here for you. I'm gonna pray. We're all gonna stand together. And then I'm, I just wanna make one last appeal. I know that you're in your head right now. I know it because I've been in that seat. First seven years of my marriage, train wreck. Don't gasp. If she were here, she'd say, yep. And, and got to battle brain cancer for 18 months. Was told I'd had two years to live. I've been down there. I've, I've buried little boys and little girls. I've, I've seen good men die of cancer where scandalous ones stay alive. Like, come and receive the kindness of the Lord to you in this season, in this moment. He sees you. Why am I here? except that he sees you. Why, why this for you tonight if he doesn't see you? Now, will you receive from him now what he has for you? Blessing and hope and courage from someone who's not in that spot right now. Father, I bless these men and women in the name of Jesus. I thank you for your goodness and grace. Uh, like even the ones that aren't in this room and they're all over the country. I, I don't, can't see that room, I just see this one, but I know humanity enough to know, gosh, my friend is right, it is scary to be us and you know it. And so I don't pretend to know all the hurt that's in here, all the disappointment that's in here, but I know that it's real and I know that it hurts and I know that it's disorienting and I know we can feel stuck in it and I know we can feel like we're never gonna get out of it. And I just rebuke the enemy right now because we will get out of it. This moment is not our lives. This moment is not our lives. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, minister to your sons and daughters, minister to our hearts tonight in a profound and beautiful way. Grant courage and boldness to those who are in the pit. And it's for your beautiful name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing? If you need prayer, you come grab it, they're here.